0: Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you.
1: If you're visiting with us today, you're in for a treat. We, uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago, my word, year and a half ago, we had a very sad Sunday where we sent away some people that we love dearly um, because they were, uh, they'll explain more, but. Um, If you've never met the Gilly family, you are going to be blessed today because they're rock stars in my books. So um, I'm going to turn this over to them, but let's give a huge real-life welcome to the Gilly clan.
0: Hey. Hey. Um, it's great to be back with you guys. I am so happy to see so many familiar faces after you know all that went on in the world in the past year and a half. I wasn't sure how many people I would know, so I'm delighted that I know so many people. Um, for those of you who don't know, we're the Gillies. I'm Bethany Gillie, this is my husband Nathan Gillie, and that's our youngest, Hannah, who doesn't want to be in the nursery this morning. Um, <coughs> we live in Honduras. Um, the closest town is a little town called Balfate, And they have one restaurant that you can get food at if you tell the lady about three days in advance that you want to eat there and give her your order so she can, you know, buy the chicken and stuff. Um, (coughs) Or kill it. (laughs) Um, So we are about two hours away from the nearest big city where we could you know, go to a grocery store and buy some stuff. So my husband works, there's a hospital there called Hospital Loma de Luz, which means light on a hill. Um, It's a Christian hospital that um, takes care of people's medical needs in the name of Jesus. My husband is a family medicine physician, and so he works there with several other um, family medicine physicians and a midwife and a couple of surgeons. And um, they take care of the people in this area that don't have access to any other health care there are no other hospitals or clinics um, close at all so um, it it meets a need for that area and these people are um, are probably some of the some of the poorest in in our world Um, they live each family lives on about the equivalent of two US dollars a day Um, and So it's easy for them to feel like they've been forgotten, not only by the world, but by their own country. Um, And so we're there to tell them that God has not forgotten them, even if it seems like the world has, and that he loves them and wants to care for them um, in the sometimes normal and sometimes crazy situations of their lives. So we have four children. Um, Elizabeth is seven. Lydia is five. Ruth is two and a half, and Hannah is one. Um, so my job is mostly mama at house, keeping track of four little ones and homeschooling. So um, so that's us, I guess, in a nutshell. And now I'll turn it over to Nathan or Pastor Hello. Jeremy. Right, one more thing I want to say. Um,
1: so one of the things that I love about God and the Church of the Nazarene is that we are all about uh, getting the, the, the gospel out however we can do that. The Church of the Nazarene has uh, missionaries that we send out that are sent out through the Church of the Nazarene, and you're going to hear from one of those next week. Uh, We're excited for what we call Missionary Chad to uh, to be with us. Uh, Nathan is an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, um, but their mission effort is not specifically through the Church of the Nazarene, and they're going to probably maybe mention a little bit more about that as this goes on. But we got to spend the week with a bunch of ordained, uh, licensed, locally licensed, district licensed delegates from across the East Tennessee District, where we are all about trying to figure out how do we get the gospel out. The Gillies are part of that in a weird sort of way, and I just love the creativity of organizations that say we want to partner with the church to do that kind of stuff. And just so you know, we did elect a new district superintendent who's going to be leading us in the years to come. Uh, he was elected for two years. Um, and our previous DS's name was Ron, and this one's going to be really hard for you to remember. Our new DS's name is Ron. So there's, we have a thing for Rons. Um, but we also were able to uh, give new district license to a bunch of, uh, to a bunch of people, uh, and we ordained a few people. So I want to introduce you to two of our one of our newly ordained elders in the Church of the Nazarene and one of our newly um, (laughs) district-licensed ministers on the district. As you listen to what the Gillies are going to share today, know this, the Church of the Nazarene loves working in whatever way possible to touch lives for kingdom's sake. So, with that, take it away.
2: All right. Um, kids, if you could come here and sit right here for story time. We're going to read a fun book. Um, I like to start off most of my sermons here, and, uh, and I preach twice a month in, in Honduras at the church that's part of our hospital um, with a kid's lesson. Uh, Because I've particularly found that most of the adults uh, understand better and enjoy more my kids' lessons than they do my preaching. So um, I hope you enjoy this part too. (laughs) This book is called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And this is the abridged version. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth. And now, there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on my skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. And I could tell it was going to be a no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony, that's this kid's brother, found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. (laughs) In the carpool, Miss Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to get carsick. No one even answered me. I could tell it was going to be a horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Miss Dixon liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. (laughs) At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. And at counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had the little coconut sprinkles on top. And guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist and Dr. Fields found a cavity Just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. So then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. (laughs) Anthony (laughs) chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe man said, we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones, but they can't make me wear them. There were lima beans for dinner, and I don't like lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and I can't stand kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear railroad train pajamas. I can't stand railroad train pajamas. And when I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse night light burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me anymore, and it's been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, and my mom says that some days are like that. Even in Australia. Have you guys ever had a time in your life where everything seemed to go wrong? Got a hand up and a lot of no's. How about where a lot of things seemed to go wrong? Have you ever felt like everyone was against you or that there was no one on your team? And how do you feel during times like that? Mad. Horrible. Horrible. So there's this guy named King David, and he wrote a lot of our psalms in the Bible, and he wrote about his feelings during one of his hardest times. We don't know exactly when he wrote the psalm, but there were several times during David's life when he had to run away from family and friends that were trying to kill him. Um, they betrayed him and he had to hide out in caves and they did terrible things and, um, and he cried out to God for help. He was hungry. One time his father-in-law Saul, Saul tried to kill him and one time his oldest son tried to kill him. Listen to what he wrote. This is Psalm 22, the first two verses. David said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. What is David asking God? Help. Yes. Mercy. Mercy. I can't take it anymore. But he's also asking God, why? Like you guys, David grew up with parents that taught him to love and trust God. David writes that since the time that he was a baby, he had learned to trust God. He obeyed God's laws, he went to their equivalent of church, to the temple. So why do you think that God did not answer David? Why hasn't he answered him? Silence is probably the wisest response to that question. I have a lot of my my patients when things are going bad for them or their family that ask me why. And I've tried to answer that question a few different ways. And most of the time I fail. Because we can't really understand why things sometimes go so wrong and why God seems absent. Sometimes years later it starts to make sense to us. We can see the way that God was working behind the scenes. But many times it seems like we just live in a broken and hopeless world. And that's what the first half of Psalm 22 is all about. It sings about it because it's a, it's a song. I just don't know how the song went because they didn't write that part down. When it seems like things can't get worse, they can. And when it seems like we can't go on or survive any more hard times, we must. My wife said during COVID when we were stuck in isolation in the middle of nowhere, she said it seemed like You you just can't, can't take it anymore. But the next morning, you wake up, and it's still happening, and you got things to do. Just stuck in your home, things to do. Maybe we even cry ourselves to sleep. But when we wake up the next morning, we keep praying for God to heal or to save or to change the problem. For David, things got so bad that he said he felt like a worm rather than a human. Now, when you guys think of a worm, what do you think of? You're, if, you, if you're thinking about a worm, you're afraid that you're going to be picked up and maybe fished with? No, by a bird. What? By a, bird. by a bird? Well, I have unique insight into what type of worm David was talking about because he wasn't talking about the type of worms that we fish with. He was talking about a much more disgusting type of worm that we have in lots of other places in the world. You see, in Honduras, sometimes a fly called a bot fly decides to bite you on the head. And and it kind of bothers you a little bit, but you just leave it alone. And then where that bite happened was actually not a bite, but it was the fly laying a larvae that then comes alive inside of your scalp and starts to wriggle and hurt. And it is the most disgusting thing that you can think of to feel something that's not you wriggling inside of your scalp. And I have to cut those out and, um, and kill them in Honduras so that the kids will be comfortable, because otherwise they're just feeling really bad. One sec. Normally they pop out once they've eaten enough of your tissue, Um, but it's better to just cut them open and kill them. Um, So that's the kind of worm that David felt like, the disgusting, nasty, terrible, flesh-eating type worm. Um, So that's pretty low, right? If you feel like that kind of a worm. David felt like everyone hated him. Everyone that looked at him seemed to be making fun of him. Have you guys ever felt like everyone was making fun of you? No? That's good. Sometimes. Good. The psalm tells us that people laughed at David's continued faith in God. He had no one to help him, and he begged God to save him. He felt surrounded by scary, dangerous enemies. It was like a nightmare that he couldn't get out of. His legs felt like jello. His heart was all fear. Then at the last moment, after his enemies had trapped him, had taken everything from him, even his clothes, after they'd actually begun to kill him, suddenly he is rescued. And then Psalm 22 breaks from this desperate, pleading mercy, crying out for God into praising. From a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad situation, to a song praising God's faithfulness. And David says, God does hear it when we cry. He doesn't look away when we're suffering. He is good. He's worthy of being worshipped. And by the end, not in the middle of it, but by the end, everyone will know this is true. Guys, there's going to be times in your lives When you will feel sad. When you will feel abandoned. When really bad things are going to happen. Some of them might be your fault. A lot of them will not be your fault. You probably won't feel like God is with you. But remember, even when you don't feel it, God is with you. He is good. He is holy. He loves you. He is mighty to save. He may not come when you call. Elizabeth, stop. Or do what you want him to do. He's not a gumball machine. That's what one of my professors used to say. You don't put a quarter in like a prayer and out pops the gumball so you can eat it. He's not like that. But in the end, he saves those who keep seeking him. So I want you guys to remember that. To help you remember it, As you go out with Mr. Craig, here's a fun activity you guys can do. There's a maze that's almost impossible, but you can get through it. Um, And a word search. So you can hand those to Mr. Craig as you guys go to the back, okay? Okay. Sometimes... Being a medical missionary is a a front row seat to how good God is. We get to see babies born. Just recently we got to see a a kid that survived a 30-foot fall out of a cacao tree onto his face. Um, He was a little crazy, literally, for about two or three days, but he had no fractures, and the swelling in his brain went down, and he got completely better. Uh, We get to see God redeeming terrible situations of uh, a a drunk moto accident or um, things like that and, and turning lives around through those and people choosing to accept Christ. But other times, being a medical missionary is the front row seat to the brokenness of our world. And sometimes it's both, one right after the other. I remember a a situation where I had this, this difficult delivery of, of a mom. She came in after trying to deliver at home to save money. We have one of the cheapest um, delivery bills of, of all the hospitals in our area because our goal is not to make money, but we still want to give people the dignity of paying some. So we charge about 20 bucks um, if you come in, deliver your baby there, get all your prenatal care, uh, we keep you there, we watch your baby, check all that stuff. Um, and she wanted to save money, so she tried to deliver it home. And it went too long, and there was, the baby was distressed, got in, baby looked really bad. We were able to go ahead and deliver normally, but baby had, had been in meconium for a long time. That's baby poop. Um, and had breathed in a lot of it. We resuscitated baby, and it seemed like things were going really well. So I'd been up most of the night, and we came down to church the next morning, and I had a little free time because Bethany was doing worship. Um, So she was practicing beforehand, and Ruthie said, can we go see the babies because she loves to round with me on the babies. And so we went in and saw these babies, and um, specifically this one that she knew that I would delivered overnight. And she held it, and she loves to pray for babies. So she said a little prayer, something like, God, baby, amen. Um, And... um, and she said, can we come back and see this baby tomorrow? And I said, sure, babe. We can come back and see this baby tomorrow. But that night, um, sometimes babies who have had a lot of meconium, they uh, are working too hard. And, um, and the baby works so hard that, sh- that she popped her lungs. Um, and we reinflated the lungs and intubated and did all that we could, but the baby died. And my thought was... I'm going to have to tell my two-year-old that we can't come see the baby in the morning because he died. Um, so sometimes we see really good things and sometimes we see really hard things. Um, sometimes, though, in exactly the same moment, in the same patient, we glimpse the hope that we have in Christ in the midst of a really hopeless and terrible situation, I have a two-year-old patient named Maritza. Um, she sounds a lot like Ruth when she talks. Uh, if you've followed my family's blog, then you've met you've probably seen her name in, in our prayer request. If you haven't followed it, you can scan that QRS code and follow it <laughs> um, um, so Maritza was born as a, as a healthy baby girl, but when she was about six months, she started to have problems. You see, our kidneys are meant to filter out and balance a variety of breakdown products, um, and they, they keep in all the good things that we need, and they put out all the bad things that we have too much of or don't need, and that's a really complicated process. Um, so when Maritza was about six months, she started to get really puffy and swollen, and her belly started to swell, and her face started to swell, and she started visiting doctors, and then she got sent to the main hospital in Honduras, and she was put inpatient, and they tried um, these medications that normally work. Um, and most children who take these medications get better, and sometimes they get worse, but they, but eventually they grow out of this. But she never responded to the medications. Um, and... Um, so then the Maritza's mom was abandoned by her husband because her husband didn't want to have a medically complicated child and things were just getting too difficult for him. So he left um, and she has no money and she's trying to keep two kids and she has no way to to know whether or not her options are exhausted and so she ended up coming to hospital Loma de Luz. Uh, and pretty often we can find something that was missed or something that was misdiagnosed and, and help people because, um, because the Honduran healthcare system takes care of a lot of things well, but we see all the things that haven't gone well. <laughs> uh, and so we tried some of the same treatments in higher doses and pulse dosings, and different formulations And um, by this point, Maritz has been puffy uh, with this big swollen belly uh, for almost a year. Uh, So much so that you've got a two-year-old kid who should weigh about 18 pounds who weighs 50 pounds. Um, And so... We started treating her, and then we—I explained to mom like she's not responding to these treatments. There's a chance that she could, from a medical perspective, that she could respond at any point uh, up until the point where she passes from this, because it's a, it becomes deadly over time. Uh, and so we'll continue the medication, and you're always welcome to come back, and we'll keep—we'll keep alongside you in this. We'll keep treating her. Um. And recently she came in and she was suddenly in kidney failure. Not just her kidneys weren't filtering, but her kidneys were failing. uh, And she had a fever. And that's the thing that most often kills these type of patients uh, is their abdomen just suddenly becomes infected. Um, And so I started to prepare mom for the possibility that her daughter was going to die. Uh, I prayed with her several times. I didn't have a lot of words of comfort to offer the mom because, um, kind of like I said to the kid, when you start trying to explain to a grieving person why things are going on or how they should be comforted, uh, most of the time you stick your foot in your mouth. Um, But I offered her presence, um, our presence and God's presence. And one night, um, we were draining this fluid off of her abdomen through a needle. Um and Maritza was feeling a little better because despite the fact that it's a painful procedure to have pressure relieved from your abdomen feels good. And uh, the doctor who was doing it with me, Doctor Jason, uh, brought his guitar and so while the fluid was draining out he, he started to play Waymaker for her. Um and these are the words that he said. You guys know them. We sang them earlier. You're here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. That's who you are. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Those are words that I would never just say to someone who's suffering, who's grieving in that situation. I wouldn't say, listen, our God is a miracle worker, and he's going to heal your child. Um, that's, that's not how, I, how I, uh, I feel I can operate. But somehow this song, which is even better in Spanish than it is in English, spoke to the heart of this mother and her child. And the mom began to tearfully sing along and the little daughter picked up on the chorus and was kind of moving her head to the rest of it. Um, And the words that would have rung hollow, had they just been spoken, resonated. Um, We couldn't dismiss or fix the problem we were grieving over. Logic and religious explanations would not be of any help. But the right song... Putting the truth of God's goodness side by side with the suffering child um, didn't diminish the fact that this mom was grieving or that that this child was suffering, but it did say that God is still good. Uh, Without without using the word still there to kind of compare and contrast, it it just put it right alongside it allowed the two seemingly incompatible truths of the situation to come together. There's a dying two year old girl, and there's a faithful good God at work. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Somehow, the song allowed the truth of God's goodness to transcend the terrible situation and fill up that I see you room for a moment. Maritza got a little better. Um, after that, uh, she her renal failure got better as her fever went down and the antibiotics cleared up the infection, but she's still limping along in terms of her health, and um, it's still a really rough situation that that God hasn't stepped into and just saved and healed in the way that I want God to. Um, and that's how things are sometimes, right? Sometimes we're stuck in the first part of Psalm 22, and we're wondering when the when the the middle is going to finally come. When is God really going to step in? And the and the psalm makes it obvious that like like there's now is the time. Okay, if not then then now is the time, God. Like you can't wait any longer. Now think for a moment of the psalm that we open with, this Psalm 22. It's a Hebrew song that puts two truths unapologetically together. The forsaken psalmist who waited and waited for God to save him from a terrible situation is then followed by this praise of the same psalmist for the salvation that finally came at his most desperate moment. The psalm pulls two truths together, a desperate situation and a faithful God. It pulls and holds and waits. The psalm circles the drain over and over again, holding the truth of God's faithfulness up like someone who's drowning. It calls God to action. And really there's kind of this sarcastic biting language in the psalm that you can't quite hear when he's he's saying things that, when he says like, God, why are you far from me? He's using the same verses of God's covenant promise with Israel where God said, I am with you. And he's reversing it and saying, why are you not faithful to what you said? Because I know you're faithful. But there's, some angry biting words in that first part of the psalm because even though he knows that God is faithful he's angry because God is not saving him like like he expects God to do like God's covenant seems to say that he would do then ultimately the tension is resolved David is saved God's faithful loving kindness shows forth and he rescues the psalmist so In one hand, you have the truth that God is faithful, good, and mighty to save. And in the other, we find ourselves isolated, at death's door, scared, hopeless. And when we find these two truths to be in one hand and the other in our lives, we find ourselves in good company. Because Jesus Christ quoted the title and starting line of Psalm 22 from the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that scripture shouldn't sit right with you. When you read it, you should think, God doesn't really forsake, right? Is Jesus feeling this or what? And when you get that sort of dissonance, when you're reading the Bible and you get that sort of dissonance, what should you do? You should dig deeper. You should reflect on what doesn't make sense and you should lower your defenses and submit yourself to the Word. You can find, you can find commentaries out there if you look hard enough on the internet that will wiggle it away to make it make sense for how you want it to be. But don't do that. Sincerely open yourself to the Word of God and say, why doesn't this sit right with me, God? Help me. I'm listening. I want to know you better. I want to understand your word. And so if you do that with this opening verse of Psalm 22, then you find out that in the Hebrew culture that Jesus is coming from, there's a really common way of relating to one another that's a line drop, where they drop a piece of the Old Testament um, that most of them had, were very familiar with or had memorized, uh, large chunks of. And you just bring that into your conversation, kind of like we might jokingly do with a, with a line from a movie. Or we can do as Christians. If I say, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, then you guys would all know what I'm talking about. Not just that, but you would also know that I'm referencing a very hopeful psalm. Because when I say I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, you hear in that, uh, I will fear no evil. You hear the rest of that psalm, or or at least feel it. You know that thou art with me, thy rod and thy thy staff, they comfort me. You hear the green pastures, the still waters. At the end of this, there's a bountiful table, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So even when I say, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm bringing hope into that conversation, right? And that's what in Jesus's day and age would often happen. So none of his disciples would have understood my illusion if I said, amazing grace, how sweet, but you guys could all finish that right? But the Psalms, they were commonly known. And they didn't have numbering systems like we do. They didn't call it Psalm 22. They called each Psalm by its first line. That was its title. And so Jews all around would have instantly began working their way from the starting point that Jesus gave. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Their mind would have said, why are you so far from saving him, from the words of his groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. So imagine you're looking up at Christ on the cross, finishing this psalm as I'm reading it to you they cried and they were rescued in you they put their trust and were not put to shame but i am scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me and you can look around and see the mockers at the foot of the cross they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him they open their their wide they open wide their mouths at me like the ravening and roaring lion i am poured out like Water, and all my bones are out of joint. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. The first half, God was dying. Jesus, the Son of God, felt forsaken by God. Things seemed impossibly broken, hopeless. But the psalm that he is bringing to mind doesn't end there. It goes on. You have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. From the cross, as he was dying, even in asking, why has God forsaken me? Jesus was calling to mind, for those listening, a song of God's ultimate faithfulness, a song of hope in the midst of hopelessness, a hope that transcends, a hope that doesn't make sense or make everything hunky-dory, but a real and true hope that does not ultimately disappoint. Um... What I'd like to do is I'm going to pray a benediction. And as I finish praying the benediction, we're going to sing uh, together the a little bit of Waymaker. Uh, and that will be our, our concluding act together of, of worship and declaration that, that God is hope in the midst of hopeless situations. Father God, teach us to be singers and psalmists. Teach us how to hold on to the hope of your faithful goodness. Father God, we pray right now that you would heal Maritza and that you would be with her mother. And God, as we face loneliness, despair, brokenness, sickness, and even death. Teach us, Lord, how to sing songs of hope that transcend our hopeless world. Thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to join us in person. Our address is 2022 East Main Street in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you'd like to make a donation to keep our podcast ministry going, you can do so online at reallifecommunity.org slash give. Thanks again for listening.